titled my message this morning, A War for Your Mind. I don't know if you're familiar with a phenomenon that's sweeping through the churches right now, this idea of what's called deconstruction. This deconstruction is happening all around us, and it's typical with people who have been in the church, typically when they were in youth ministry, when they were in high school, when they went off to college, things started to deconstruct for them, and they started to question and to wonder these things about who God was. And as they progressively got more involved in the world, they progressively got less involved in the church. I mean, isn't that just the natural byproduct of giving your time and effort and energy to one thing that might be new and exciting and the one thing that you kind of had more consistency in becomes the thing that takes a back seat. That's what this whole deconstruction idea is in our culture and even within the church culture. Guys like Rhett and Link, who are famous YouTubers, they have hundreds of million subscribers to their channels, and they grew up in the church, in their youth ministry. Some of them were even involved in their youth ministry as volunteers, as leaders, and things like that. But as they progressively got more involved, it seems, in the world, they, begot, they became more, uh, less involved in the church. And they started to deconstruct the things that they were surrounding themselves with in the world and started comparing God to the way in which they wanted to walk rather than coming back to the formative years of their relationship to Jesus. The lead singer of Hawk Nelson, John Steingart, is also a part of this deconstruction movement in that through his involvement in the church, he was um, a mega church lead singer of a band, you know, like Christian pop rock. It was kind of the uh, Blink-182 version, but done in a Christian way, right? It was Christian music, even though the music itself was not a follower of Jesus. It was this idea that Christian music was taking over, and it was storming the gates of culture, and it was saying this is the new healthy byproduct of what the church is producing for the world to see and to hear, and he was a part of it. Selling out venues left and right, making money off of the music that he was a part of, and then just about a year ago said, I am deconstructing my faith in a way where I don't, I don't any longer believe the things that I used to believe. There's a story by a pastor named Garrett Jones. He's a pastor in Los Angeles, and he talks about when he first moved into this new home. He's from England. He moved out here to Los Angeles to plant a church. It's thriving out there. It's doing great things. But he was talking to uh, his wife about this new house that they had just bought. And he was talking about these weeds that they saw in the back garden. And this garden was beautiful. It was amazing. And it was everything that you would want a garden to look like in its prime, except for the weeds that were around it. Now, we all have had our situation with weeds before, and we know how terrible those things can be. And so him and his wife took a couple of uh, wheelbarrows and they were filling them with these weeds and just filling them over and over and over. And they were piling up one after another and they finally got rid of everything and they said, oh, this looks beautiful. Like even though there's nothing in the soil, the soil itself looks good right now. And a few days later, they were at a barbecue with a neighbor and the neighbor said, oh, you know, we're excited that you're in this house. Um, the, the most pristine thing about your house is the garden in the back. 
And the pastor's like, yeah, that's right, you know, yeah. He's like, but the one thing is that you have to understand that there are these bulbs that look like weeds, but in its season, they are the most beautiful exotic tulips you'll ever see in your life. And from that moment, that pastor realized that the bulbs he had taken out, what he thought were weeds, ended up becoming these exotic tulips that the entire neighborhood was excited about seeing in its season. And he realized in that moment that he needed to go replant some new exotic tulips because he had ripped out the weeds. And oftentimes for our, our, our thrill of the moment, because we are so amped up on pulling those weeds out, we don't necessarily always know what to identify the weed as. And so we get so uh, consumed and caught up about pulling the weeds and everything looks beautiful and it's ready for, this, for its next season. But sometimes those things that we pull or that ambition can sort of get in the way of the bigger picture of things. And I, I feel like it seems that this deconstruction is one of those things because if you've been in the church and you've been in youth group and all these other things, you would know and understand sort of where these people who are deconstructing are coming from. And so there's a little bit of sympathy that goes along with these people who are, in a sense, deconstructing their faith, which is not really any sort of deconstruction. It seems it's more of a demolishing of faith. And so much of what we see in deconstruction is what seems like one of two things. Number one, the person who is deconstructing is typically not following Christ in its current season, but is using past experiences to determine how they feel towards God now. They look back and they think, well, yeah, I remember my youth pastor telling me like, you know, safe sex is safe sex. And there's all these other things that they were told by their pastor and they would you know, play dodgeball and have overnighters and all those other things. And they were using this idea of what they believed about sex then and what they believe about sex now and saying, well, that doesn't line up with what I believe anymore. God must not be who he says or who my pastor said he was. And the second production of deconstruction is that their love for materialism has blinded the minds of those who cannot see past their worldly desires. I, I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you have felt the desire to deconstruct your faith as to whether lay it all out and leave it there and walk away and reconstruct something else or to deconstruct so that you can reconstruct something that is there as well. There was a sense of a deconstruction of my own faith, but it wasn't because I was wanting to abandon the faith, but I wanted to restructure and to discover maybe there's something deeper to what it means to follow Christ. Because we know that following Christ is not a walk in the park, even as much as walking in a park is not that fun sometimes, especially in this heat. It has been some of the hardest years following Jesus for some of us, but it has also been the most formative years of following Jesus and in understanding who I am and who God is. Much of why deconstruction is happening today is because the person who was once in the church is most likely now living in the world and looking from the outside in and doesn't see much of a difference. In James 4, he's talking about quarreling and causing fights, and he's talking about worldliness. He's talking about murder. He's talking about coveting. He's talking about boxing matches. He's talking about all of these things, adulterous people, and we would think, he must be talking about the world. He must be talking about people who have no idea who God is, and yet we know from the very beginning of James chapter 1 that he's talking to who? Christians who have been dispersed throughout other areas of life. 
And so he is talking about a people who should not have these passions or this murderous heart or this covetousness or whatever that else might look like. And so the way that Christians have treated each other has become a significant reason why people have not only left the church, but they have left Jesus. Because we are supposed to be ambassadors, because we are supposed to represent Christ, people see us and they think, well, that must be how their God treats people also. And yet at the same time, as much as I don't defend what they're doing in their deconstruction, I think that there is also a problem in that they're following more of a version of churchianity rather than they're following a version of Christianity. They're looking at people and they're identifying what we're doing. And they're saying, well, I can't serve a God who treats people like that. And to some degree, they're not wrong because the church must do a better job of what Jesus says, loving God and loving others, loving our neighbor as ourself. Because we can look at our church and think, wow, that's sad and we hope that never happens here, obviously. Yet how often can we sit next to people in our church or see people from our church out in the culture or in the community and we have these preconceived ideas about who they are and we make assumptions about people without actually knowing who they are. This exists on every front because for you and I, there's a war going on for our mind. James calls it this idea of quarreling and fighting because we have passions at war within us, passions for worldliness, and yet passions for the word of God. Galatians 5 takes this idea a little bit further in this fight between what the Bible calls your flesh and your spirit. Galatians 5.13 starts, For you were called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour each other, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You see, if the Christian life looks too hard, we must remember that we are not called to live it by ourselves. And yet at times, we want this individualistic personal relationship with Christ, but not with each other. And that's why Paul calls us in Galatians 5 to live in the spirit of God. The command of love is not a new legalistic burden that is laid on our shoulders. It is what happens freely when we walk by the spirit of God. And so what we see in response to this is people who try to love without relying on God's spirit always wind up trying to fill their own emptiness rather than sharing their fullness. They continue to feel this emptiness, this longing for more, which in and of itself is sort of a worldly, spiritual type of thing that's happening. It's this blending of wanting godly spiritual things in a worldly way. It's knowing that what I have and what God has given to me through his spirit and what I've learned that I haven't discovered before is still not enough. Lord, fill me even more. And God's like, how much longer until your cup is starting to overflow and you have nowhere to disperse the rest of what is happening? I want to be more full. I want to be more complete. Who doesn't? 
We all want to be more full in our relationship to Christ. And yet there is this idea that if we are trying to love other people without relying on the spirit of God, we will always find ourselves becoming for some reason more empty rather than more full. And so in that moment, love ceases to be love. It becomes selfish, as James 3 put it last week, this bitter jealousy, this selfish ambition. But the good news is that it is not primarily our work, but God's. And so relying on the work of God in us is what it means to walk by the Spirit. The Spirit is not a leader, uh, like a team captain in a locker room. The Spirit is not like rallying the troops. Like, all right, guys, we've got to do this. Let's put all the effort into it. We can make this happen. And he, you know, he drinks the juice and he gets back on the, on the court and things happen or whatever. The Holy Spirit is like conducting a train that you and I get to get on board with. And we see the locomotive move in that direction. And so the question that we beg from this then is how do I know if I'm being led by the Spirit? Galatians 5, walking in the Spirit, between the flesh and the Spirit, goes even further into the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so if our Christian walk is to be a walk of love, to be a walk of joy, of peace, and of patience, if we are to walk in kindness, if we are to walk in gentleness and in self-control, we must look to walking by the Spirit which is to produce the fruit of the Spirit. If you want to know if you're walking in the Spirit of God today, look at the evidence by which it is attached to the branches of your life. Are you producing a fruit of love, not just for yourself to other people, but do you find the people around you are becoming more loving, are more peaceful, are more patient, are more kind? The reason for such emphasis on walking in the Spirit is because James is clear that even within the church, And to this very day, we are reading this passage because there is still a bitterness and a jealousy and a selfishness. And so if the church had figured this out, James would have said, look to this production, look to this person who has figured out the whole formulation of how to walk in the spirit and how to not fight inside the church. And yet here we are talking about the destruction of family, of friendship and of faith. All because we want something our flesh tells us we have to have. When God says, I have a greater plan for you than you think you have for yourself. When God tries to direct us down a path, we are easy to divert, to detours, to find what it is we want. But the detour is not necessarily so we can take a path to what we want, but how we want to get there. And in the timing of when we want to get there. But we have to remember that we will not find a permanent solution to removing our earthly passions on this side of earth. And it doesn't help that our American individualistic tradition has been particularly keen on seeing the church fight because it just goes to prove even further the division and the discord inside the church, which they would label hypocrisy. But it's not the fact that discord exists inside the church because any church will have it because it has sinners. But it is how the church handles this discord that can show the world how the church should be. As Jesus reminds us, they will know us by our love. So this arguing that James is warning us about stems from a love for the world and a love for being right. And again, this has a lot to do with our words. It has to do with our beliefs about what can satisfy and what won't. 
Again, traditionally here in James, he's talking to these teachers who were rabbis. But what was interesting about these rabbis is before they were teachers inside the church, they were politicians outside the church. They knew how to sway. They knew how to persuade people into following particular beliefs. And a lot of it was coercion into this idea that didn't even actually exist. And so these rabbis, who were once politicians, started coming into the church, which is why James said earlier, you should be careful about being a teacher of God's word, because to you, there is a stricter judgment attached to what you say. And so during the service, these rabbis are proclaiming the name of Jesus. But after service, they weren't going to brunch. They weren't headed out for a swim day with their family. They were having a little bonfire powwow, kicking back in the amphitheater, talking crap on other people inside their own church. Please don't think that that happens here. You're like, I wonder, wow, okay, this, his message was good today, but what is he saying to his wife tonight? <laughs> behind the pulpit, they were, they were proclaiming the beauty of God, but behind closed doors, they were bad-mouthing their congregation. And so we can't for a moment believe that we are not succumbed to this reality as well. It can happen in any church because in any church there are a lot of sinners trying to get along together. And so it's easy for prayer circles to become gossip corners in a way that we pray, in the way that we tell other people, oh, you need to pray for so-and-so. He's dealing with this. Oh my gosh, is he really? Wow, I didn't know that. Can't believe he would do something like that. It's this quarreling that continues because they weren't confronting the issue at hand. Biblically, the Bible says if you have an issue with someone else inside the church, go to them in love and in gentleness and confront them on it. And if you don't have a solution there, bring someone else who can look at the situation and be a part of the, the whole the whole idea of uh, honesty and transparency, but they were allowing the bitterness that was once rooted there to continue to grow, and it started to dictate their relationships. You see, it's only a matter of time before what's in our heart is exposed to the world by what comes out in our speech. And I believe the reason Jesus said they will know us by our love is because love is not just the mouthing of words. Anytime I've officiated a marriage ceremony, vows that are being made, I remind the husband and the wife that you're not just mouthing words to each other like, yeah, in sickness and in health, blah, 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 I do, I do, I do, I do. It's not this idea of just mouthing words and it looks good on a video and you've got the perfect lighting for your photos and things like that. You can look back on, man, what a great wedding. But it's more of this idea of knowing and believing the vows and the words that came out of your mouth, you actually are going to live by them. They aren't just mouthing words to each other. They're committing themselves to a life of love and of sacrifice, of forgiveness and of humility. Because often our words get us into trouble. It's only being exposed for what was already there. And so what has happened in this deconstruction because of the quarreling and the fighting and the arguments and that feeling of, I just hate that person so much that you can't even look at them when they come. <laughs> you know, you get all like kind of like worked up about that particular individual coming to church. But then you go home and you read Hebrews 4.12, which says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we read that and we think, Lord, would you please send that verse to someone today? Lord, would you please find that person that I've been fighting with and quarreling, and would you please give them that verse for today? Without looking inside and like, oh, maybe it's trying to discern my thoughts and my intentions. 
Another translation puts it, God's powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open. That's really weird and awkward. Like, unless you work in surgery anywhere, like you get that. But then laying us open to listen and to obey because nothing and no one can resist God's word. We can't get away from it no matter what. You see, the word of God will expose whatever is closed behind the doors of our heart. It will cause a reaction that shows whether you have remained humble or if you are needing to be humbled. Because being humble recognizes the sin that easily trips you up as you walk with Jesus, and then you know how to respond to that. But being humbled means that someone else is recognizing the situation and the experience and is causing the humbling to take place, and you're having a hard time reacting to the situation. You think of David when he was confronted by his buddy Nathan after he had committed adultery, after he got Bathsheba pregnant, after he murdered her husband. And Nathan comes to him with this story and he starts telling him about all these things. And rather than David, who was before that a very humble man, the, the Bible even calls him a man after God's own heart. And then we see here that Nathan confronts him on this and he gives him a story. He says, what should be done to this person? He says, well, he should be killed. He should be removed from service. And Nathan says, the person I've just described is you. You see, David was projecting this idea that it was someone else that Nathan was talking about when in reality, Nathan was confronting David about David. And so many have turned from reading their Bibles because maybe, just maybe, it's confronting something that is a little too difficult to talk about or to remove from who we are. I would like to welcome you to the effect of sin. I'm not sure if you've ever experienced that before because it masquerades around like a source that gives life, but really it's only dressed up to lure us away from the presence of God. Cornelius Plantinga, in his book, A Breviary of Sin, it is probably the most in-depth book I've ever read on the topic of sin, and he calls sin the disruption of shalom. He says that there is a disruption that takes place because sin, as we know it, is missing the mark. Someone who has a bow and arrow and they miss the mark entirely. They don't even hit any mark. They miss it entirely, which is probably what I would be doing in archery. I'm a terrible, I'm a terrible shot. It's, it's not good. But it's this idea that there's a disruption that's taking place. What was once peaceful and calm and compassionate and considerate and loving and kind, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It is this idea that there is a disruption of our shalom, this disruption of our peace that exists. And that's why quarrels, jealousy, fighting, worldliness, coveting, lust, wrong motives, they all exist because sin has entangled itself into our hearts and it's playing us for a puppet. I don't know if you... Uh, have ever experienced this, but I had uh, a younger brother when we had different cereals in our house, um, any of like the Raisin Bran or the Wheaties or the Grape Nuts or things like that. I don't even know why we had Grape Nuts. Those are the worst things ever. Like they destroy your mouth. But for some reason they were in our house growing up. And so instead of just eating it as it was intended, my brother would go and grab the sugar bowl and like just spoonfuls of sugar into his Wheaties so that he could have sugary cereal. And um, as much as that sounds amazing, and even though the Wheaties box is like, it helps lower cholesterol, or maybe that's Honey Nut Cheerios, I'm not sure. One of them lowers cholesterol or something. 
But what happens is it, it becomes counterintuitive to the whole idea of wanting to eat healthy, right? Like if you're on a diet or something and you're just eating a bunch of salads, which I have found out that salads aren't as healthy as people say they are. And someone in here is like, amen, pastor. Like, thank you for finally breaking the stereotype of salads. But it's more about the dressing than it is the salad. So that's a whole other topic for another day. But the whole idea is that we cannot sugarcoat what was made plain. Right? Because it, it, it's counterintuitive. And so it is with God. We cannot sugarcoat what God has made plain. He has exposed to us the very essence of what it means to follow him and what the Bible says about particular things. And so what happens is what, what God tries to make black and white, we have tried to make gray. But when we try to make gray what God says, this is what the Bible says about this. Here is how we can believe in this context for its time, but also apply it to our life today. As the Bible says that it is living and active, that the word of God is easy to penetrate our hearts and to expose our intentions. But the moment we start to wonder if God actually did say this about sexuality or if God did actually say this about relationships or about this or about that, we start to make gray what God has made black and white. We actually start to um, deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, First John 2, but it also reminds us that that's how the serpent operated in the garden. Genesis 3, did God really say you couldn't eat from that tree? Well, I mean, maybe he did. Maybe, he, let me phone a friend real quick and find out. I'm not really sure. You see, it's this idea of wanting to deceive ourselves for the things that we want in our lives, regardless of whether or not we should have it or not. The reason for it at times is because we don't assume this to be serious or as serious as James takes it. He's like, well, what, ca what causes fights and things like that? He's like, well, it's because you have passions. You have worldliness in your heart. Like, that's not why. No, that's not why. That's not it. And a lot of times we respond in that way because we're worried that James might just be right. If you ever go to the doctor and you get a checkup or you go to the dentist, I hate the dentist. I have an appointment this week. I'm not looking forward to it. I keep canceling or I keep rescheduling, you know? Like, I'm a master of rescheduling because I don't want to go. Um, because anytime I go, it's always like, oh, I think you, have a, you need to get a root canal. I'm like, what? Like, no, I don't. That's dumb. Like, that's not okay. The last root canal I had was the worst experience ever. It was the very back molar. And I had to have a root canal. I was literally like laying down with my head down, my feet up. Because the, the root in my mouth was a right angle. And it started to hit nerves all the way like up into my sinuses. And they're like, if we do this any further, like you might actually have permanent damage. I'm like, great. All because of a toothache. Like, are you serious? And so in that moment, I'm like, this is dumb. This doesn't make sense. But then as soon as someone tells me you could have permanent damage, I'm like, great. I'm going to die on this table. Like, youth pastor dies at a dentist, you know, because of whatever happens. And we, we start to fret and we start to worry and we get anxious about what's happening. And we're not fully aware of maybe the things that are happening behind the scenes that we can't see. But because the doctor is sending us to a specialist, we have all this worry, anxiety, it's all built up. But then the specialist comes back and he says, well, everything's good. You're actually, you're, you're doing fine. Just do this, this, and this, and I won't have to see you ever again. And you're like... Perfect, great, good, I don't want to be here anyway. You can leave that doctor's office in one of two ways. One, you can ignore everything he said and just like, cool, I'm just going to live my life. And if something bad happens, I'll go back to him again, but it probably won't even happen anyway. I think I'm speaking mostly for guys in here. 
Because the girls are like, you know, they have a, a fever or something. They're like, I need to go to the doctor. It's like, what? Like, you're fine. Don't worry about it. But that's a whole different thing. You can leave, go about your life as usual, not go back to your doctor until next year's checkup. Or you can become proactive and find out specifically what it was that your doctor sent you to a specialist for. And you can become proactive in your health to keep it from happening again. And so in the same way as that, we must diagnose ourselves when looking at how we follow Jesus. We good with just going with the flow? Just showing up one hour a day or one hour on one day out of the week and saying, oh, God and I, oh man, I've learned so much from the Lord. When Monday through Saturday, you have no intentions of following God or anything of that nature. We're good with just showing up for that one day for one hour to check off our list of spiritual things to do for the week. Can you honestly say that a thriving marriage is where two people just live underneath a house. Not underneath a house, that would, that would be weird, but under a roof of a house. <laughs> if you're living underneath the house, that's, 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 that's on you, that's fine, whatever. You, you do your thing. But it, you can't say that just two people living together is a marriage and it's thriving. Like, oh yeah, my husband and I, we see each other once a week and you know we sleep in the same bed together, we eat meals together, but we don't really talk about things. We're not really proactive. We don't really go out on dates. We don't do this, we don't do that. I wouldn't call that a thriving marriage because a thriving marriage is when each spouse is willing to advance the marriage by dating, by doing life together, by asking for forgiveness when doing wrong, by being able to respond when your wife asks you how your day was without just saying it was good. Because your wife wants to know the details of your life. So men, start writing journals. 8 a.m., sat in seat. 8.05, sipped a cup of coffee. 8.10, another sip. And you can start journaling those things and then you can just hand it to your wife. How was your day? It was good. Here's my, here's my checklist for the week. Yeah, that, that's not how a marriage works. You can't just approach your conversations like that. Or when my wife would drive home from work, she would ask, hey, how's your day going? That's good. How's yours? 45 minutes later, oh, I didn't know that, that, you know, so-and-so and this. And, oh, that's how it went in your classroom. Oh, okay, that's great. Hey, you know what? I'm in a meeting right now. Why didn't you just say so? Because I didn't want to be rude. You see, it's just this idea of believing that a thriving marriage is when both parties are involved. When it's not just one seeking out, seeking out, seeking out. And the other person is just kind of absorbing each and every blow. And so, in fact, that's why James says here that you are adulterous people. You know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. James was talking to people who are trying to find their joy by using God as their so-called spouse to get money to go out and to make friends with the world. An adulterer wants the joy of both commitment to a spouse while enjoying the thrill of a catch. This is what we call today cheating. James 4, 6 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So he's talking to proud people. Verse 8 follows, cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. How are they double-minded? Because half the time they're in relationship to God, and half the time they're in relationship with the world. That's why Jesus asked, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And speaking contextually into your marriage, what does it profit a man if he gains a new relationship every five months but loses his wife? Because we can find ourselves easily attaching to other things because of the way they make us feel or the way that they approached us or this, this flirting or whatever else might happen. And spiritually, we do the same with God and the world as well. Maybe we're just not as aware of it. 
He wants us to start honoring him by finding pleasure in our spouses just as much as he wants us to honor him by finding pleasure in him. And so often I tell couples at their weddings to date their mate. It's a great way of just knowing you need to get out. Be so busy trying to spend time with your spouse that you don't even have time to look at someone else. Don't go cheat on God by finding pleasure in what he has declared to be sin. And we do this all the time. We find ourselves coming to church, doing the Sunday thing, lifting our hands, singing the songs, sitting in the chairs, talking to people, fist bumping, what's up? Go grab some coffee because it's free, better than Denny's down the street. And then Monday through Saturday, we find ourselves not really caring about what God thinks about the rest of my week or how I'm treating my wife or how I'm treating my kids. And so James is telling us that the pathway to that type of joy, it's kind of weird, but at first it's sorrow. He says that you need to turn your laughter into mourning and your joy needs to be turned to gloom. And what he's getting at is what 2 Corinthians 7 is getting at, which says that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and worldly grief produces death. So when James says, stop rejoicing and weep, be brokenhearted, don't take joy anymore, he means start having a godly grief for your sin. Godly grief leads to repentance, repentance leads to salvation, and salvation is full of joy. So even in the summons to be broken, the summons to weep, he is saying that you will find the fullness of joy in Christ because it's not fun when God takes away something that's been attached to us for so long. This is where a serious self-examination, however, should take place. Are there things that I desire more than God right now? Because isn't that how adultery begins? Is there anything that I desire more than my spouse? Do I desire more of my work, more of my time? I think, in all honesty, God saved my marriage by allowing us to plant a church. I was married to my work. I was married to the ministry. I was married to what I was doing. I was finding identity in being a pastor and being a part of what was happening. And people are asking, what's it like to work at Pastor Greg Laurie's church? I'm like, it's like, I think it's like any other church. I'm not really sure. I've never been to any other church. But what I do know is that I believe God saved my marriage by allowing us to plant a church. Because I'm the boss now, as much as that sounds weird. But there are times when I have recognized that I have been more married to my work than I've been married to my wife, that I have been more uh, connected to what I'm doing relationally with people at work than I am with my own kids. And so there's a freedom in that attachment in knowing that I don't want to be known or recognized any further as a great pastor. I don't care about that anymore. I used to. It was, that was my thing. It was my identity. What I want to be known for now is being a great father and a great husband. But it came at a price. And it's still something that I grapple with today. Because when you desire someone else or something else rather than your spouse, it's like going and feeling that vibrancy of that, that flirtatiousness that takes place in the world. Not just physically and, and verbally, but even flirtatious spiritually where something else looks better than God, even though God has said, I am what you need. And this is all too easy to find in the church. Timothy and Paul had a friend named Demas who had helped them plant churches. But Demas, the Bible says, found his love for the world greater than his love for God. 
Now, if this describes your marital status today, know this, there is hope, but it is a road that will be difficult to get back to and to stay on. But nothing is impossible with God. All things are possible. There is nothing that God cannot do. It doesn't matter if he's a little sloppy. Anyone? No? Okay. Maybe she runs a tight ship. Maybe he or she is lazy. She's always asking me to do chores or to pick up after myself. Did you know that if you picked up after yourself, she wouldn't need to ask you to pick up after yourself? Did you know that if you just took out the trash, she wouldn't need to ask you to take out the trash? And it, why is it, But why is it always during the Laker game? Like, let's be honest. Like, hey, can you take out the trash? Like, yeah, a timeout. And then she's like, I'll just do it. It's like, no, I meant to do it. And she's like, but I want you to do it now. And I'm like, but I don't want to. And then, of course, that whole thing happens. We're going we're gonna to do a marriage relationship series soon. I think maybe we need it. I know I need it, but I'm not gonna teach it. We're gonna bring someone else in to do it. I've only been married like eight or nine years. I don't know anything. Your marriage is not, however, sustained by the love that started it. Your marriage is sustained by the love you continue to build upon until the end. But thinking back on that love that started it all, right? The honeymoon phase and all that good stuff. It ignites the spark that leads to the fire in your marriage. And I think that we can also see that we need that ignition in our relationship to Christ. We've kind of become dull and just doing the church thing and whatever else when, in fact, when you remember when Christ came into your life and he changed you and he transformed you, that you went cold turkey off the drugs, off the alcohol, off of whatever it was that was worldly to you, it's about intention. It's about being intentional about your walk with your spouse and your walk with God. And so you need to pursue Christ as the source of your joy while setting aside other things that have brought temporary joy from your past. All earthly relationships must become secondary to your spouse, and in the same way, all earthly relationships must become secondary to God. A good marriage, whether between us and God or us and our spouse, is one where each partner secretly suspects they got the better deal. Now, for us dudes, we know we got the better deal. Like, People ask, like, how did you score that? How, how this doesn't work? It's like, grace on grace. You know, like, I just walk around saying grace on grace because that's just the truth. You see, God is after your heart, but I wonder if he's after his. There's a sinful and false jealousy, but there's a jealousy that exists that God has, but it's a jealousy that leads him to want to bless you and further your joy. Just as I would be jealous if someone came up to my wife and said, hey, let's go out or this or that or whatever, be like, nah, fool, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pop one. Like, you're gonna, you're gonna be laying on the ground. That's why I've started taking boxing lessons. Um, I, I actually have, but it's not for that reason. If I know that someone's trying to get to my wife, I'm gonna let them know, like, uh-uh, like that ain't gonna happen. Not because I possess her, but because I know that only I can truly bless her for her good. And in the same way, just as God is a jealous God seeking your attention so he can bless you, he is also in that same context a consuming fire. And in its very nature, he is willing to consume anything that prevents you from being blessed. There is no price God will not pay to have all of who you are. And it's at the cross and it's at the tomb that we remind ourselves of this. That's why James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. As I wrap this up, I wanna talk about one thing. 
in the form of the, the deconstruction and, and things like that. On the opposite side of the deconstruction, the church has become obsessed with what we call revival. Have you heard of that? I'm sure you have, because everyone's talking about revival right now. They're all obsessed with it, as I, I am as well, no doubt. I wanna see revival. I would love to see a nation come to their knees before Jesus and repent of their sins, but it's not going to be found in a political party or a policy. Revival can only be called revival once something has been revived. Revival cannot begin in our city, in our state, in our world until it first begins in our heart. But how does revival happen? How does it begin? It's going to sound weird. It might sound counterintuitive, but revival starts with a growing awareness of sin. Too often people, I'm I'm just going to say it, pastors behind the pulpit aren't talking enough about sin. But what, what people say is like, well, you don't talk enough about sin. Okay, as much as Someone may not talk about sin. They talk about the love of Christ and all those other things. But what fuels the love of Christ? It's the fact that he knows how wretched and sinful we are, that he would give us a place in his family despite our sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher and also saw revival, says this. Watch the individuals at the beginning. They begin to see what a terrible, appalling thing sin is in the sight of God. They temporarily even forget the state of the church and forget their own anguish. It is the thought of sin in the sight of God. Never has there been a revival that have had such visions of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin. Grieve over your sin and get right with God who takes that sin and makes it his own so that you can have your joy and your peace that you've been searching for and it makes you complete. But revival, if you truly want to see it, starts with sin. It starts with identifying what sin is and how sin can be removed. Because no revival has ever taken place without first recognizing the need to remove your sin and the need of finding a Savior. It is knowing and believing and understanding that God wants to do something in your heart as long as you are willing to do it also. We, we use 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people are called by my rule, all that. Like, okay, that's great. Yes, they do need to humble themselves, but what does that look like? What does it mean to humble yourself? C.S. Lewis would call it that it's not just thinking of yourself less, but thinking, or not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. And so that is where we come to the communion table today, where we find our sin and we find that revival, if that's what you seek in a relationship to Christ, that it begins by going back to the original thing. Acts 2 said that they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, to the breaking of bread, to partaking of communion, and it was this fellowship and this community aspect. And so in the same way as a church, that is why we partake of communion every single week. Because if we get anything right, if we get those things right, everything else will fall into place. If we get the apostles teaching right, if we get the breaking of bread right, if we get the community and the fellowship right, everything else will just fall into place. So if we stick to what we know and we do it well, God will see what's happening and he will bless what is taking place because the main thing has remained the main thing and the foundation has not been shaken. Let's pray together as we partake of communion together.